Acts 20, verses 28 through 38. Let's all read it together. Beginning with verse 28. Paul is speaking. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, man will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. Shall we pray? Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning. And we're thankful, Father, for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. The blessings, Lord, that come when we worship you in spirit and in truth are too many to mention. And we are thankful, Lord God, that you continue, Lord, to bless as we worship you not only in spirit and in truth, but in sincerity of heart. Our desire, Lord God, is, is to understand and to know your word. To receive all of its wisdom and instruction. That we may walk in a manner worthy of your calling. As we continue, Lord, today to look at the heart of the Apostle Paul. May we see things, Lord, that we will desire that we might have in our own hearts so that you, Lord, will be glorified by the way that we not only walk but talk and live. We ask, Lord, for the strength to do so in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Y'all may be seated. If there is one thing we have learned about the heart of the Apostle Paul, if there's one thing that we've learned about the heart of the Apostle Paul in our study of the book of Acts, that one thing would be that he was not concerned with himself as much as he was concerned for the church and its future. Now, this can be seen in much of his writings. One passage in particular bears this out. It's a passage that I've used many times in the last few months as we've been looking at chapter 20 and the things that Paul has been sharing from his heart in chapter 20. But it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28, where Paul says of the things that he experienced at his own body experience for the sake of the gospel. He said from the Jews five times, I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys, often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things. And notice this, after all that he says about what he has experienced personally, he says, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, his daily concern, his daily burden, my deep concern for all the churches. He was more concerned for the church of Jesus Christ. He was more concerned about the body of Christ than he was about his own body. About his own needs. But this section in chapter 20 of the book of Acts is the quintessential passage that defines for us the heart of a person in love with his Savior and Lord, in love with the church that he was to care for, the church that he was to feed, to tend, and from within, train others to continue that, that most precious work and calling. He prepares the Ephesian elders for this calling by exhorting them to first and foremost examine themselves and then to take heed to all the flock, as we saw last time in verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Notice the order there he gives. Take heed to yourselves first and then to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. And as He speaks to the Ephesian elders of their responsibilities to shepherd and oversee the church of God, Paul emphasizes their need to watch and warn the church of the dangers from without and the dangers from within. The dangers from outside and the dangers that would arise from inside the church. And that danger was an enemy, an enemy that would appear in sheep's clothing, whose whole purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy, not sparing the flock of God in the least way. We read in verses 29 through 31, For I know this, that after my departure... And again, this is somewhat review of what we saw last time. I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Those are the ones from without or outside. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, those from within, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. He says, therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And it's interesting that we're given a, a little bit of, a, of an English uh, alliteration and, and, uh, and guide to what we are to do as leaders in the church. Watch and warn. Using the, word, uh, the letter W. Watch and warn. Watch and warn. And then to do so with a compassionate heart. He says, remember that I, I did so for three years with tears. Going back over to verse 29, when Paul mentions the wolves, he calls them savage wolves. And the word savage there means grievous or burdensome. And it's interesting that both Jesus and Paul would deal with the legalists of their day, the Pharisees, who, as Jesus accused them, would bind the backs of their Jewish brethren. So certainly, to some extent, Jesus is also calling them wolves. I want you to notice something that Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 4. He says, For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, 
but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. I want you to see this in the, in the King James Version because of the word grievous, the same word that we see being used for savage wolves in our text. Matthew 23.4, King James Version says, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born. Where it says hard to bear in the New King James, it, means, it, it says grievous to be born. B-O-R-N-E is to bear as far as to bear as far as a weight upon. So grievous to be born. And lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. By contrast, the Lord's commandments are not so. The commandments of the Lord are not that way. John, in, in his first letter to the church, he says, 1 John 5.3, by the way. 1 John 5.3, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. And the same word there is grievous. The commandments of God are not savage, in other words. They're not to be like burdens. They're not to be this grievous weight that is hard to bear. And so, and I'm using this to make this point, as it was then with Paul, so it is today. Legalism, licentiousness, and all manner of teachings and traditions of men that are not in line with the Word of God fall into the category of grievous and burdensome attacks upon the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's Word. Now understand this, when I mention legalism, I'm talking about uh, that idea that as Christians, you know, we, we need to fall into, into doing all kinds of things. You know, in other words, we have to uh, wear certain clothes, be a certain way, do the certain things, do not, you know, you do this, don't do that, don't go here, don't go there, don't go here, don't go there, you can go here, but you can't go there. And it's just, you know, trying to be set under a whole bunch of rules, legalism. Of course, we know that as we've seen Paul preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, he preaches the grace of Christ. We're no longer under the law, but under grace. So legalism is something that is grievous, burdensome, savage, because it places undue burden upon people. But I mentioned licentiousness as well. In other words, when people think that they have license to do whatever they want, thinking that, oh, I can do everything I want now because I'm saved, I don't have to worry about the law. No, listen. When you begin to do whatever you want to do and you fall into sin and not think that that's important, realize this, you're putting a burden upon yourself. So it comes back down to being burdensome and grievous and savage to yourself. If you're licentious, you're doing what you want to do, even though we know that that does not represent Christ. So now with that, th- with that thought in mind, legalism, licentiousness, and all manner of teachings and traditions of men, in other words, men who come and add to or take away from the Word of God, therefore making them as, as people that are not in line with the Word of God, they fall into this category of grievous and burdensome attacks upon the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's Word. So when we deal with things like New Age heresies, the New Age heresies, which are really just the old lie of the serpent in the garden. The Gnostic heresies wrapped in the pop psychology and the philosophies that are promoted by Oprah and her, and her gurus on her, on her television program. And then there's the return to liturgical ancient forms of worship as espoused by the emerging church movement within the last 15 years or so. Rather than teach the Word of God, let's go back to some of the ways that we, we used to worship. You know, let's, turn on, let's light a whole bunch of candles, turn the lights off. You know, let's, let's focus on the little flicker you know, of the light. And there are other things like the replacement theology of churches that do not recognize God's continued restoration of Israel. Not to mention the non-Christian cults, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Christian Science. We can go on and on. All of these things... There's certainly other categories, but all of these things form the pack of wolves that Paul foresaw. They form the pack of wolves that that Paul foresaw. You get get into non-Christian cults, it's Jesus plus something. 
But that plus also includes putting extra and undue burdens upon your life so that you can be saved. The Bible teaches us that we are not saved by our good things. We're saved by the work of Jesus Christ and believing upon the work of the cross. So it is no wonder then that the leaders of the church needed to be on their toes as we need to be on our toes today. We cannot fall asleep, in other words. We need to stay quite awake to what is happening in Christendom and in the world. We need to know what the trends are that are taking place, what cults are on the move, what false teachings are drawing attention. And we do so because we're trying to care for you and watch for you. Now, the Apostle Peter gave two solemn exhortations to the church in his first letter to the church. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, Peter says, but, in the end, but, but the end of all things is at hand, he says. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Be serious. Be serious and be watchful. And the word watchful there is, 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 reminds us of our need to be vigilant, not to fall asleep in any of these things. And, th- and, and this is a, a recurring thing in his letter because in the next chapter, Peter would say in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, be sober, be vigilant. So there's a, 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 an extra reminder. Be sober, be serious, be vigilant, be watchful, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What's very strange about the liberal church today in Christendom, not Christianity, not true Christianity, but in Christendom, very strange thing in liberal theologies today is that they don't even believe in a, in a devil. They don't believe that there's an adversary. So are Peter and Paul and all the apostles and Jesus himself a little bit loony? Or was that old-fashioned and now we're in a new age and we're in a, in a new way of thinking? If the Bible tells us that God is the same... He never changes. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today. That His Word never changes. Then there is still a devil. And there is still an adversary. And there is still something and someone to be watchful for. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. In other words, we're not alone. All believers, all true believers in Jesus Christ are having to face the same thing. So we need to be sober. We need to be vigilant. I believe that this is a message for the church in America, the church in the United States today. More than, ever, more than any other time. I mean, this, this fits our, our need today. To be sober, to be vigilant because of so much deception and so many lies being thrown around and about that are not in line with the Word of God in the church. And then Paul adds these thoughts to what I'm sharing with you today. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4-8. through eight. He says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief, the day of the Lord. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. I think Paul's trying to make a point here. In his repetition, he's trying to make sure that we're getting the the issue and the point. Therefore, let us not sleep, he says in verse 6, as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Peter is telling us to to do that. Paul is telling us to do that. Be watchful and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. This is a time of vigilance for the church. This is a time for leaders in the church to take hold of that mantle of leadership. That watches like a watchman. That takes care as a shepherd to the sheep. That oversees as the leaders are supposed to do. Paul desired that the Ephesian elders would not forget him as well. He tells us there of what he had done. 
Watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He says, remember me. And remember my tears. Remember my tears for you. One commentator wrote this. He said his hand, or I should say his was a teaching baptized in love and feeling and hot tears. He thought of how defenseless and vulnerable so many of God's people would be once the wolves descended on the fold and he wept. And all he could do was warn by ceaseless exhortation and example. All he could do was warn by ceaseless exhortation and example. Paul now can only do one thing. After he has shared his heart with these people, all he can do is one thing. He places these men, these Ephesian elders, the elders of the church in Ephesus, he places them in the hands of Almighty God. Please look at verse 32 of our text. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to, and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now let me say to you that this is all that any pastor can do. I want you to listen carefully to me. This is all that any pastor can do. Teach you, feed you, care for you. But in the end, we must entrust you into the very hands of God. We must entrust you into the very hands of God. I can't go home with all of you. And then I have to kind of dis, you know, dispel one of those myths that, that says, I, I, I go by your house and look into your window to see how you're living. That's where I get all my sermon material from. That's not what I do. I don't do it, I don't want to do it. God already sees you. I don't, I don't need to go. But as a pastor, that's all we can do. We teach you, we feed you, we care for you, we counsel you, we lead you, guide you, direct you in God's Word. But in the end, we must entrust you into the very hands of, Paul, uh, uh, into the very hands of God. Now Paul commends these pastors, these shepherds, these overseers to God's Word. He commends them to God's Word. I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace. Which should remind us of what the apostles said early on in the church in, in Acts chapter 6. Remember when there were so many people to take care of that they had to raise up deacons to, 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 you know, to tend the tables and to help to feed the people and do all the things that everybody wanted the pastors to do or the, uh, the apostles to do. But they said after doing all of this as, as, as they were gathering these men together. He says, but we will, or they said, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And in this particular case, this, this is not so much just an order. It is what is done completely and totally. It is praying and the ministry of the Word. Those things cannot be separated in the life of a pastor, teacher, uh, overseer, shepherd. The ministry of the Word, but with prayer. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. So Paul is commending these Ephesian elders to the very same thing. I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace. I put you into the hands of God and into God's Word. Which is also able to build you up, he says. It's not just that you get to tell everybody what the Bible says and it doesn't affect you. I have to be affected by it as well. I need to be built up in, in, in faith. I need to be built up in God's Word, in the understanding of God's Word. But this is what we find out when we are in God's Word, whether it be a sheep or shepherds. By the way, I'm, I'm as much a sheep as you are. I'm as much a sheep as you are. But these Ephesian elders, Paul, is, as he's saying this to them, 
are going to realize that in God's Word, they would become strong. In God's Word, they would become strong. Because you see, God's Word also had the power to protect them. The more we know and understand and stand upon God's Word, the more we realize how the Word protects our hearts and our minds. So God's Word had the power to protect them. It had strengthening power to build them up. It had securing power to guarantee their inheritance. And it had sanctifying power to set them apart by God's grace with all other saints for Him, for Himself, for God. And you see, this is where Paul took his stand. And this is where we must take our stand. This is where Paul took his stand. He had done all that he could. Now it was up to God and their dependency upon him. Their dependency upon the Lord. Their trust in the Lord. Their faith in God. Their surrender to God's will. Their submission to the purposes and plans of God. Is it any wonder then that Paul would write such wonderful words to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 when he says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Think about that phrase. Because this is in effect what he's saying. To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. God's power, God's Spirit, and God's Word. To Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. According to the power that works in us, to Him be the glory in the church of Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It is the very same hard attitude that Paul gives words to Timothy, his son in the faith, in a very personal way, when he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day, till the day of Christ. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So Paul is saying, I am commending you to God the Father. I am commending you to His Word because He can do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think. And He is able to keep you and to keep what you have committed until the day of Christ. Were I to never see you again, I would hope and pray that I have commended you into the hands of God. That has been my calling to you. To commend you into the hands of God and to the Word of God. The Word of His grace. And then the Apostle says to to the Ephesian elders, he says, look at my heart, look at my hands, and look at my help. Let's look at verses 33 through 35 now. Look at my heart, Look at my hands and look at my help. He says in verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. In other words, look at my heart. I have coveted no one's gold or silver or gold or apparel. And then in verse 34, he says, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities. Look at my hands. You yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. And then he says, look at my help. Look at my helpfulness to you. I have shown you in every way. By laboring like this, I have shown you in every way that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus. That he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Look at my heart. Look at my hands. Look at my helpfulness. I have shown you that you must now support the weak. 
Now, if there, is, if there was one reason why Paul used himself as an example, if there was one reason why Paul used himself as an example, it would be to have these elders recognize the wolves by comparison. Now, consider the context here. Paul uses himself as an example to have the elders recognize the wolves by comparison. I've not coveted anybody's gold, money, clothes, or anything. With my hands, I have labored among you and helped those who are with me, not, so as not to be a burden to you. And what I have taught you, I have shown you your need to support the weak. You see, those predators that he says are going to be here, the ones coming from without and coming from within, those predators would be men who took advantage of God's people for their own personal gain. Can I say that that's still happening today? Wouldn't you agree with me that there are, there are more than enough charlatans out on TV and, and all kinds of media today? Send your money to this and that, and God will bless you. And of course, you know, even if if they have to tell a little old lady on on a pension and on Social Security, send your best check, and she just writes it over to them. She has nothing to eat, but they're eating pretty well. Taking advantage, you see. Paul says, I didn't come to take advantage of you. Now, It is understood in the Scriptures that in other passages of the Scriptures, Paul teaches that it is okay for a a missionary or a minister to receive support. He's not against that. What he did, he did because he believed that that's what he needed to do to show these people what his intentions were. But he himself uh, would consider it to be better uh, better, uh, for the work of God if missionaries and ministers were to receive support. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verses 13 and 14, when he says, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? He says, Even so, the Lord has commanded that, that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So those are the words of Paul. He's not trying to contradict what he believes God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is teaching him to teach others. Or what he says to Timothy himself in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18, when he says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Quoting from the Old Testament. And then quoting from the words of Jesus himself. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Paul is certainly teaching that it's okay to receive support from the church. And using in the Old Testament the pattern of of the priests and, and, and the temple. But his point here in Acts 20, Paul's point here in Acts 20 is to contrast himself to the wolves that were coming. He labored tirelessly, putting the ministry first, because he was all about the care of the flock. The predators would put themselves first and be all about taking advantage of the flock and of the generosity of the believers, but not the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, we know that going back to Acts chapter 18, that Paul meets uh, you know, Aquila and Priscilla there in, in, in Corinth, and, and it is there that, of course, they, they work together in a tent-making business. But he also does it in various other places. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. The church of Thessalonica, he says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. So again, there is that need to contrast himself to these wolves who are coming, whose only purpose is to feed themselves. What did we learn about the wolves last week? 
they're a very cagey type of a, of a predator, a hunter. But when it comes to sheep, what do they do? They maul them. They, they do so uh, going way beyond. They'll, rather, they'll kill ten sheep, but eat only one. That's not sparing the flock, is it? So Paul is making that comparison in, in, in his own life. But then Paul mentions some words that he attributed to Jesus, uh, which, which really won't appear in any of the Gospels. You can look them up, but you'll, you won't find these particular words in this particular sta- uh, statement. It is more blessed to give than to receive. You only find that here. Many commentators believe that this is really just a, a, a passed down by oral tradition rather than written tradition. But that at some point in time, Jesus may have said this. And I, and I need to say to you that we don't have recorded everything that Jesus said and did in his earthly ministry. For John the uh, Apostle tells us in his gospel, John chapter 21, verse 25, he says there are also many other things that, that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. There would be so much. If, if we wrote down everything that Jesus did or said, uh, we, well, we, we, just couldn't, we just couldn't contain it, even in the world. And yet the words that Luke records, which were spoken by Paul to the Ephesian elders, are perfect for all who administer to God's people. They are perfect for every person who would minister to God's people. And he attributes it to, to, to Jesus himself. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Ministers must be more concerned about what they can give their flock than concerned about what their flock can give them. Paul modeled it in his own life, and he wanted the elders to do the same in their lives. I read something very, very interesting the other day, and I think it's a pretty neat saying. It's been said that the divine prescription for the disease of coveting is giving. The divine prescription for the disease of coveting is giving. If you want to get away from the disease of coveting and wanting everything that everybody else has, then the only prescription is giving. You give. It's not so much just a matter of giving of money. There are three things that we learn that Jesus teaches in the Gospels. The giving of our time, our treasure, and our talent. Have we given of our time to the Lord and to His people? Are we giving of our treasure unto the storehouse of God? Where you're getting fed. And what about the talents that God has given you? Of the three, only one-third is about giving money. What about time and talent? That brings me to a little side note that I want to share with you today. And this is for you. This is for you to grow in in, and and, and to be encouraged by if, if you understand what I'm saying. John Corson writes this. He says, studies have shown. I mean, they've taken pencil to paper here, so you understand this. Studies have shown that if Christians would tithe, in other words, if if every Christian gave 10% to the church, because a tithe is a 10%, and I'm not saying this to bring up the discussion as to whether we should tithe or not tithe or whatever. Just listen to what I'm saying. Studies have shown that if Christians would tithe, within two years, every church facility in the world would be paid for, every ministry would be functional and out of debt, every Christian university, Bible school, and training center would be funded, and every hungry person would be fed in two years. 
if every Christian would give 10% to the church. Now, people today wonder why ministries struggle or why people starve. But if Christians would be obedient to God's principle of the tithe, incredible power would be released through the church. It's just something to think about. And, and this is one statistic that has uh, been proven to be true. The 20% of the people in the church give 80% of what comes in into churches today. 20% of the people give 80% of what comes into a church. Something to think about. Something that Paul has spoken about a lot in his letters to the Corinthian church. Evidently they had some problems in that area. But in bringing this chapter to a close, which I want to do today, we see Paul not as some cold distributor of doctrinal fact, not some cold dispenser of Bible verses, but we see him truly as a warm pastoral man who loved his people deeply and he received great love from them as well. The last three verses of Acts chapter 20 say, and when he had said these things, in other words, when he completed his, his talk to these Ephesian elders, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. That sounds somewhat painful, doesn't it? They fell on his neck. <laughs> Obviously, when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son and we see how the father fell upon the, the neck of his son to kiss him, even though he was really stinky and unclean. It shows us somewhat of a cultural pattern. They fell on Paul's neck and, and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. And I'm wondering between the last sentence and the sentence previous to that, that there wasn't a little bit of a struggle with Paul. Paul, don't go. We love you. We, we appreciate what you've done, what you've given to us. Nonetheless, after their time spent in fellowship, they realize God's hand upon Paul and God's purposes in Paul to, to leave and to go. And so they accompanied him to the ship. I continue to think of that image of Paul falling to his knees to pray. The great preacher H.A. Ironside, Harry Ironside, told of visiting a godly Irishman Andrew Fraser, who had come to Southern California to recover from a serious illness. Though quite weak, he opened his worn Bible and began expounding the deep truths of God in a way that Ironside had never heard before. Ironside was so moved by Fraser's words that he asked him, Where did you get those things? Could you tell me where I could find a book that would open them up to me? Do, did, you, did you learn them in some seminary or, or college? And the sickly man gave an answer that, that Ironside said he would never forget. And he quotes Fraser in saying, My dear young man, I learned these things on my knees on the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. 
there with my open Bible before me. I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and to open the Word to my heart. He taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I ever could have learned in all the seminaries or colleges in the world. I learned more. I was taught more on my knees by God than anywhere else. We learn that the reason that Paul could stand before men, both supporters and opponents, with such great courage and confidence is that he learned on his knees that the power was not his, but Christ's. It wasn't his spirit, but the Holy Spirit. It wasn't his authority, but God's authority. It was Christ's power, God's spirit, and God's authority that he learned on his knees. And to think of this picture of commending these elders to God and to the grace, to the word of his grace, and then falling on his knees. It is that great picture of that cycle of, of the Christian believer. To bow before our great God and Savior. To trust in His ever-precious Word. To be confident that it is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by His mercy He has saved us. And it is by that very same confidence that we are equipped with His Word and His Spirit to touch the lives of those that God places before us. You see, if we've learned anything at all in these last few weeks, we spent five weeks on the heart of the Apostle Paul. If we've learned anything, I hope and pray that you have learned that Paul's was the heart of a servant. That Paul's heart was the heart of a servant. And if there is any one scripture that I want to leave with you that bears that out and that you can take with you and see it very clearly, not only lived out in Paul's life, but in all those who have listened to what Paul says and have, and have, and, and have walked and followed and copied that kind of life. It is verse 24. This is our, this is our send-off here for today. Acts 20, verse 24. When Paul, having gone from city to city, town to town, church to church, and in every place, prophets were saying to him, the Holy Spirit is saying, Paul, heavy things are going to face you when you get to Jerusalem. I go bound, Paul says, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. With all of this in his mind and in his heart, hearing from prophets and people saying, Paul, don't go, don't go. He says, but none of these things move me. This is the heart of the servant. None of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Ministry, folks, the very word ministry itself, the very root of that word, is the word serve or service. Paul 
the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. None of these things move me. I don't know what I, what's going to happen, even, even if the Holy Spirit testifies to me through these prophets. That does not move me. I know where I'm going. I know why I'm going. I know who's sending me. I know who'll be with me when I get there. It is the Lord who I have entrusted you to. It is the Lord who I've entrusted my life to. So I don't count my life dear to myself. So that I may finish my race, my ministry, my service with joy. I don't know about you, but I wonder how many people in the church today are just going from ministry to ministry as a job and, and just not having any joy in it whatsoever and never really suffering the things that we've read that Paul has suffered. And yet Paul says, I don't count my life dear to myself. That's the secret. That's the key. Because my life doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And if my life belongs to Jesus Christ, then guess what? When I finish this race, He who is with me is going to grant me an even greater joy than I have even now for serving Him. Because I know one thing. That the joy of the Lord is my strength. So how can I not do what I do for the Lord Jesus Christ? How can I do it without joy? And yet I want to finish my race with joy. You know what he's saying? It's not a burden to face the trials that I've been facing. It's not a burden to have the opposition that I've had to deal with. It's not a burden. Because I believe that Jesus said... I'm going to be with you. And I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be your strength. I'll be your love. I'll be your mercy. And I'll be your joy. So testify to the gospel of the grace of God. No burden in the commandments of the Lord, folks. Yet, we want to live our lives right before God. Let's pray.